And welcome back to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. He's Tom Maloney, and I'm Dee Dodson. After a nationwide search, Lakeshore Public Media recently hired Charles Chuck Roberts as its new president and CEO. A public media veteran with more than 20 years of technical and institutional media experience, Lakeshore Public Media's board of directors unanimously hired him, crediting his extensive career in media, sharing that it's what's needed to grow the Lakeshore PBS and Lakeshore Public Radio brands. Chuck joins us now in the studio to talk about his vision for the future of Lakeshore Public Media. So Chuck, first... Welcome to Northwest Indiana, and thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Okay, Chuck, so you arrived in Northwest Indiana a little bit more than a week ago, and you hit the ground running. So what have you discovered about Lakeshore Public Media? I've discovered that there's a very energetic, devoted staff uh, here within these walls that uh, love public media, love what it means to serve the community, and do a great job of bringing the sights, sounds, and, and love of this Northwest Indiana to the people who deserve it and need it. Chuck, we uh, we don't quite have the hills of West Virginia. Exactly. Um, and the weather is a, a little bit different as well. But uh, what have you seen uh, around Northwest Indiana that I suppose makes you want to go ahead and pull up roots in West Virginia and, and settle here? Well, I, I lived in, I'm originally an Air Force brat. I moved all over the place, different places around the world. And uh, in uh, the early 90s, moved to West Virginia. I lived there for 30 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, until then, I hadn't called anywhere home. So for that period of time, I called that home. And things have changed a little bit, and I came up here, and there's, there's a lot more diversity in this area of the world than, than what I've been used to in the past time. Um, it is flatter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are bigger <laughs> winds that stay longer. Uh, the, the, the climate's actually very similar. It's about 10 degrees cooler here. But uh, I found that there are a, a wider differing of, of different cultures, different people, different ideas, and it's ex- ex- exciting, exciting to be able to deal with that and work in that environment. Um, there, there's opportunity here. There's opportunity for growth. There's opportunity to make something of myself and this organization to bring it forward. So it's slightly, slightly colder here in Northwest Indiana. Slightly. I, I, I feel, I feel like that is going to be the the heir apparent uh, during your uh, your tenure, whether it's the next uh, decade, two or three decades. Here, uh, you will come to enjoy Northwest Indiana summers versus Northwest Indiana winters. And I apologize to the winter <laughs> lovers out there, my son included, um, but. You know, you haven't even gotten to the beaches yet and the summer festivals as well that we have here across northwest Indiana. Um, But let's get into, though, a little bit of the background in you and your broadcast career, your broadcast tenure. You said you're an Air Force brat. Um, Were you involved in the media in the Air Force at all, or was it just strictly a a parent moving around a lot and you just kind of hopscotched with them? It's kind of a funny story about how communications became my job. I was actually, you know, my father was in the Air Force, so I moved around with him. And and of course, they have uh, AFRTS and Armed Forces Network there. So you get a lot of uh, different type of, of, of stimuli, I guess, in the media. And uh, we moved to Louisiana, and I was going to community college, Bossier Parish Community College there, and didn't have a major. And I was also working as a shift manager at a local McDonald's and was just making voices over the intercom for the uh, drive through And uh, this woman said, you have a great voice. You should be on the radio. And something clicked and thought, you know what, I love movies, I love TV, I love radio. Maybe communications is where I need to go to. 
and then visited a friend in West Virginia and visited West Virginia State University. It was West Virginia State College at the time and saw they had a very good communications department that was actually cheaper to go to school there than to where my parents were moving into Virginia. Uh, so I went to school there. Uh, it, it took me a little bit longer than the normal person. My, my, my college career was about 10 years. So I, <laughs> I like to say I took my time and did it right. And uh, fresh out of college, I already had a, a job with Mountain News Network. It was a startup of a cable news channel. Um, I got my internship hours in, so they had to hire me to keep me. And I was their editor and the person who put it on air. That's TV stuff. And uh, very quickly, that, that lasted for about a year, then jumped to commercial TV. And then in 2000 at uh, West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and I was there for 21 years. And I learned how much I loved public media uh, versus the commercial because you actually had the time to learn your craft and tell a story and give, and give the stories the time that they deserved. And I was there in, in uh, the video production department for quite some time, worked on a show called Legislature Today, where I learned how to move and groove and get things done quickly and uh, thought that that would be my only thing is I'd be working in uh, the video production department and, and had some opportunities to move up, became a COO and then CEO of West Virginia Public Broadcasting and 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 really learned what it was to to manage people to be someone who helped people grow within the organization. D, he's a TV guy. No, I think he's actually a radio guy. Okay, well, and fingers just, crossed there. You just said something that I think was so key. Um, you know, the board met with us, the staff here at Lakeshore uh, Public Media, and one of the things that they said was that your experience in public media is what was needed to help grow the brand. So talk about a little bit about what you plan to do to help grow the brand for Lakeshore PBS as well as Lakeshore Public Radio. Well, you have to look at what it is you're doing. Uh, and how it's being received by the community. I, I know there are there are properties, there are shows that have been done for a while, and, and we have to look at that and see if we have the resources to expand those. The other thing is, is, of course, there are different forms of media. We have digital media, we have the TV video production department, and we have the radio department. And when we get to the bottom of it, we're actually all part of Lakeshore Public Media. And that's probably the thing we need to grow is that even though there's separate departments, there's NPR, there's PBS, they all come to you, the local listeners and viewers, from Lakeshore Public Media. And that's something I want to look at is growing that brand, that we're all one unit. We're, we're, as far as, as, as public media entities go, we're, we're a pretty small group, a small dedicated group that, that pulls together, and we all have to pull in the same direction to uh, make sure that we're covering our area as best we can and, and giving the diversity and, and inclusion to everyone that we can on all our different programs. This is Regionally Speaking. I'm Tom Maloney. She's Dee Dotson. We're talking with the new CEO, President and CEO of Lakeshore Public Media, Chuck Roberts, here on Regionally Speaking. Chuck, recently your name came up in a story from NPR, and no doubt some of those listeners heard that story uh, here on this station. Um, and, and not necessarily to dig into the story, but can you give us uh, maybe your side of the story in terms of the end of your tenure at West Virginia? Well, there were some things that were mentioned in the story that had to do with confidential personnel matters, which I, I can't discuss because as a, a manager, that's not something you're supposed to do. But there was a political change on the board at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and they decided they wanted to go in a new direction with the position. And I accepted that. And, and even though it was years of service there, I understand that with new leadership, with new administration, sometimes that happens. And I moved on. I, I finished my MBA at Marshall University 
And I, I started looking around about what meant for me for the next steps of Chuck Roberts. And I looked at becoming a consultant. I look at trying to help the local rural areas of West Virginia get broadband connectivity and, and dabbled in that. And then I started interviewing for positions again with public media. And through the conversations I had and the people I dealt with and my experience, I, this felt like home. It felt like the place I needed to be and the place I need to move on to because of my experience, of my service, and how I know the industry, how I know TV, how I know radio, how I know the engineering side of it there at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We had already moved to ATSC3, which was a huge undertaking. Mm -hmm. We had to acquire a $7.3 million grant from the state to make that move back when the FCC was doing the Spectrum Repack. I saw that as an opportunity to upgrade our services, and now that area has a better, stronger, more powerful broadcasting network than it ever has. And that's something we're trying to do here at Lakeshore Public Media is do the same thing. We have an antenna project that we're trying to get underway. Two. Two antenna projects, yes. (laughs) It's funny how these projects kind of grow themselves. We're working on TV and radio at the same time to bring you the best, most uh, uh, highly advanced signal we can. So hearing all of that, and obviously you've spent several decades here in public media, something for listeners as well. The first time you and I met was in early January at the State House in Indianapolis. And uh, upon meeting you and then and you know talking with a lot of my colleagues across the state, you knew half the state of Indiana already. So if that tells you, I guess, sort of how small the pool is in terms right. of public broadcasting, where it's like you're coming from West Virginia, I'm in Northwest Indiana, we've never met but we both know all of the same players in that regard. Right. Can you talk with me about how important those relationships are across uh, both PBS, NPR, and at the community level as well when it comes to an organization and outreach and building those relationships and that trust? They're, they're very important. A lot of the people that we met up at the State House when we were at that IPBS meeting were people I had met through national conferences. I was also a member of the Osby Group, the Organization of State Broadcast Executives, uh, who who I had already met, Mark Newman, who, of course, runs IPBS here. And I had met Phil Hoffman, who was at Orlando and now is at Ball State. So you meet all these people that are dealing with the same situations. And that, that's something important to understand is no matter what size the area is that you're covering, there's all similar stories. There's similar issues. Uh, there's there's broadband expansion. There's rurality. There's diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're all dealing with the same issues. So people are pretty much the same no, no matter where you go across the country when you get to the, the, the core of them. And, and that's why I think we're important to tell those stories and bring them out that you don't hear in two-minute clips on the regular news channels. Mm-hmm. So that's important. Getting in around here, you and I have discussed how the politics of the rural area up here in Lake County and, and, and the rest of uh, northwest Indiana is a little bit different than, say, where I come from or someone else comes from because it's a different part of the world. Of course, many people say we're in the shadow of Chicago, but yet we're still a completely different state. Mm-hmm. We're on central time versus where most of Indiana's on Eastern right, time. And right. that's something that hit me yesterday when I missed a meeting because I had the wrong time. But uh, it, 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 there's these little differences that I think we bring forth that, that, that helps show how everyone has a role to play and everyone has a story to be heard here at Lakeshore Public Media. Well said. 
So, Chuck, Tom asked you a little bit about this earlier. Tom, and I believe I shared this with you as well. You know, we live in northwest Indiana, a small community, just like in public broadcasting. The community itself is very small. Everyone knows everyone. And I ran into an executive of a major organization here, and they were excited that you were here and anticipating meeting you. So I wanted to know, has anybody reached out to you? And do you have plans to go out and begin to meet your new friends, your oh, new neighbors? Oh, yes. I, I'm getting emails. I'm getting mm-hmm. phone calls. There's excitement in the area. I've had We had a visit from a host from a Chicago area show yesterday. said, let's get together. Absolutely. Let's make things work. Whitney Reynolds came in. For, you know, she has her show that airs on Lakeshore Public Media and mm-hmm. said, you know, let, let's grow this thing. And that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help grow this organization. And that means grow collaborations, grow the people and the contacts I have in the area. I'm excited to get out and meet all the different chambers of commerce, all the people at the different colleges. There's so many colleges in this little area that, that bring resources to this area. And I think we have a big role to play in, in creating those collaborations. So once I get my feet I always say feet wet, but that's <laughs> yeah. not right. Mm-hmm. I get well, we my, have Lake Michigan. I, I get my feet, feet wet well, here. I need to get my feet dry and on the ground right. and understand how this organization works, mm-hmm. where there's room for improvements, where there's room for me to stay back and not touch things. That's something a lot of new executives and people who run organizations need to understand is sometimes you need to come up and understand how things have been going and where you don't need to make improvements. You need to let the thing grow and be what it is. Uh, so that, that's something I'm, I'm an inclusive leader. I like people to come to me, come to a consensus, and I also like to be accountable to the people I lead. If I'm going down a wrong path and, and I don't know all the ins and outs of what's going on, I'm approachable. Like I told the people when I first came here, Tom and everyone else, there's a reason my door's open because I have an open door policy. Unless it's shut for a phone call or something, I have to. I, I like to keep the door open and and be one with the people I'm, I'm working with. And that's the way at the end of the day I see it. I'm not. People don't work for me. People work with me. So we we got into the weeds a little bit, and I suppose I'm going to drag you back in because that's how my golf game is. <laughs> Through 20 years in public broadcasting, I've been in uh, public broadcasting now for about 14 years. You know, I've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of changes. Our, our listeners and our viewers have seen a lot of changes. Where used to have to have rabbit ears to get us, and now yeah, we're technology on. Technology is you, changing things. You were on YouTube for YouTube TV, and you can say, "Hey Alexa, play Lakeshore Public Radio," and all of a sudden, this speaker that didn't exist in your house five years ago now just puts us into your living room. Um, where do you see public media going in the next 15 to 20 years? Well, there's going to be a lot less control by the broadcasters and a lot more control by the consumers. Right now, we're at this this tipping point, and, and I've been to the national meetings where the CPB has done studies to find out how people consume what it is we broadcast. And right now, we're still at about 50% of our users use traditional media, which is radio, TV. Mm-hmm. And that's where our membership is. That's where the people who consume us are. So we have to continue to feed that and grow that. The developing technology, of course, is digital, uh, different streaming devices, watch as you like to watch, that sort of thing. So what we have to do is continue TV and radio, but make sure all of our content is available on all the new emerging technologies as well so when we shoot a show it's going to air on tv but it's also going to be able to be streamed you're going to be able to get that on passport the streaming technology through public broadcasting your radio you know i found this out in the hotel room i was trying to listen to lakeshore public radio and the dial on the alarm clock radio was so 
touchy, I couldn't actually pick us up. But I remembered, well, I'll just turn my phone on Mm -hmm. and stream it. So we're going to be there as well. You were over two different airways, and we need to look. We're going to look to try to improve the over-the-air radio stream so that people can get stream. See, I, uh, I, just, yeah. I just mixed up my technology. <laughs> over-the-air radio broadcast to make sure you can still catch us in your car and you can catch us on your radios. So we have to continue to grow all of them. You know, people said, well, when are we not going to have regularly schedules where we have a schedule that we keep on TV and radio? I don't see that for quite some time just because of the way it's set up, the underwriters and commercial world, the advertisers, they still dictate the clock on when mm-hmm. things are broadcast. So that's still a, a, an entity that's going to continue. But we just, with the limited resources we have, we have to try to make sure we're still everywhere. So Chuck, I have a question for you. We have talked about Charles Roberts, the new president and CEO, but Take a moment, because I always like to talk about the heart of the person. Take a moment to tell us about Chuck. Tell us about your family, about your beautiful wife that I just cannot wait to meet, and just about anything about you personally that you would love to share with us. So my family and friends are about as varied as the travels I've had as an Air Force brat. My mother is originally from Macon, Georgia. My father is from Jonesville, Virginia. We have traveled together as a family starting off. Let let me see if I can get it all right. I was born in Virginia. We moved to Athens, Greece, from Athens, Greece to Biloxi, Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi to Izmir, Turkey, Izmir, Turkey to Rome, New York, Rome, New York to Wiesbaden, West Germany at the time when there was a West Germany, Mm. from West Germany to uh, Bossier City, Louisiana, Bossier City, Louisiana to Manassas, Virginia in the Beltway Bandits in the D.C. area. And I realized that that area was too big for me. And then I moved to West Virginia, and then now I'm here in Indiana. So that's the type of varied person I am. And to say this, the most foreign place I've ever lived is Louisiana. But uh, um, (laughs) not bad people, just a a different way of living. But Northwest Indiana really and truly is a melting pot, it so is. it really and truly reflects your entire... And when you look on any mm-hmm. map of the area, you see this shading that comes down mm-hmm. from uh, Chicago. And, and at first, I didn't understand why. I'm like, I'm in Indiana now. What is this? But it's because the people in Chicago have made their way into Indiana for a little bit cheaper taxes, a little mm-hmm. bit cheaper rent, a little mm-hmm. bit cheaper mortgages. Nicer uh, people. And, and and a little bit quieter. You know, it's, it's not quite as, as pushed together as Chicago, but at the same time, it's a great area to come to. That's the thing I've liked about it is I found areas in northwest Indiana that remind me very much of some of the hills of West Virginia uh, around Valparaiso and uh, uh, Winfield. Matter of fact, there's a Winfield, West Virginia, and, and the topography of the area, the homes very much resemble where I've come from. So the type of person I am, I guess moving around like that has forced me to become someone who enjoys meeting new people, enjoys different accents, enjoys different life experiences. And that also serves well for public media because that's what we do. We bring that all to the table. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as many people as I know, I still have a tight-knit group of friends. Uh, I could probably count my, my closest friends on one hand. Uh, uh, people I've met actually when I was in high school. And those people I thought I'd never see again. Mm. It was a very sad time for me when I left Germany because I, I, I was graduating high school and thought, you know, this was back before the internets mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. before the Facebooks mm-hmm. and all these sort of things. And, and this weird thing happened where we all got on Facebook, we all met each other and started having reunions. I guess the, the ones I were in, went to were in Austin, Texas. And you'd say, well, why that? Well, there's a lot of military in that area and a lot of people retired there. But... Uh, um, so I had a lot of different inputs. Um, to this day, I, I still have my mother's voice and my father's voice in my head. 
Mm -hmm. uh, just the things they've taught me growing up, um, Mm -hmm. how to treat people well. And and the main thing that I like that that, uh, I kind of try to put into everyday life and the way I lead and the way I work is my father always told me, always leave a place better than you found it. Mm. And, and that's what I work hard at is to make sure that I, I help make improvements, help make a place. And it's the funniest way that this came about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were living in Germany and we were getting ready to move. And I had posters that were up on the wall with masking tape holding them up. Mm. And we took them down. And, of course, there's that little adhesive that stays on the wall. Mm-hmm. Right. And I asked my dad, I said, you know, why are we working so hard on this? Because it was like that when we got here. And he said, that's the wrong attitude, son. Like that when I got here doesn't help anybody. Mm. He said, but if I take the, the adhesive down, the wall's better than when I got here. Wow. And that's something that I always try to work at and, wow. and, and, and try to leave that mark. Before we close, okay, I have questions. Rapid fire. There's no science to this okay. at all. Okay. <laughs> it literally tells me let, let about me relax Chuck. relax my mind and see what comes. Relax yes, your mind. So I'm going to fire them off when you give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Radio or television? Oh, Keep in mind where you are. TV. Uh, all right. Baseball or football? Football. All righty. You've been in Chicago for a while. This is a major topic of debate. Oh, no. Deep dish or thin crust pizza? Oh, Lord. Come on. Right answer. I've, I told my Thank wife, being a smart aleck that I am, that I would go to Chicago and ask for a slice of Brooklyn pizza. Oh. <laughs> no. No. But I'll say this. I actually no. have not tried deep dish yet. So I I will reserve judgment until I've actually had the experience. My father, Mm -hmm. who's, you know, Jonesville, the very southwestern tip of Virginia, said loves him some deep dish. Okay. So we'll see. And I have his genes, so that'll probably flow through. Okay, I have one more. Okay. And this was important for Tom. I'm asking this on behalf of Tom. Cubs or White Sox? Cubs. Oh, no. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap it there, folks. <laughs> wrap it up. Who doesn't like a little bit of floral growing on their walls? That's true, especially the ivy on the outside, I suppose, just not yeah. on the inside of the house. But uh, that'll do it for our conversation with the new president and CEO, Charles Chuck Roberts. And, Chuck, if somebody wants to call you, send you an email, maybe they're listening to this conversation now on air or streaming online or even in podcast form, how can they get a hold of you? The number is 219-756-5656, extension 102. The email address is croberts at lakeshorepublicmedia.org. And that's where I am right now. Welcome, Chuck. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. And you're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. February marks Black History Month, an annual celebration of achievement by African Americans as well as a time for recognizing their key role in American history. The annual month-long event was birthed out of Negro History Week, an ideal by historian Carter G. Woodson, with the first sponsored event happening in 1926, just six decades after slavery was abolished with the passage of the 13th Amendment. So we wanted to spend some time today discussing Indiana's rich history and role in the Underground Railroad. Joining us now is Jeannie Reagan-Dinius, currently the Director of Historic Preservation with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation in Indianapolis. Prior to her role with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation, Jeannie was the Director of Special Initiatives with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources Division of Historic Preservation. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. 
So pleased to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Jeannie, when we began to do our research for a conversation on the history of the Underground Railroad in Indiana, I honestly could not find anyone more qualified to speak on the matter than you. So first, tell us about your involvement with the Department of Natural Resources, because you typically don't think of a historian on staff for that government agency. Well, you're very kind um, to say that about me. There are lots of people in Indiana doing research. I gleefully um, work with them all and kind of we all stand on each other's shoulders. But thank you for the kind words. So DNR um, has relationships with the National Park Service. And one of the divisions in DNR deals with the preservation of the built environment. And they do a lot of work with the national parks um, in their uh, preservation of buildings. And so um, back in the 1990s, um, Congress mandated that the, um, that the Park Service create a park, a national, like a Gettysburg, for the Underground Railroad. But recognizing that the history was still young in research and there was still so much to do, each state, they, they challenged each state to do some of their own research. And I am proud to say Indiana stepped up as a state government and said, yep, we need to do this. But the state realized that, you know, we couldn't do all the research. So um, we reached out uh, to other, you know, local historians, county historians, individuals doing things on their churches, things like that, and brought together a group that's become um, its own organization called Indiana Freedom Trails. And between all of us, we're doing research on the Underground Railroad to get a more um, accurate history of Indiana and hopefully preserve some of not just the stories, but some of the sites associated with that history. Jeannie, before we dig into Indiana's history regarding slavery and the Underground Railroad, I would like to start with how we got here. And in this case, how we got here over the course of 300 years of slavery in the country. Now, Jeannie, if you will, paint a picture of the Atlantic slave trade voyage to the American shores. So for most individuals who were brought over to what would be considered the New World, the North American continent, and to remember, they were brought to every part of the North American continent. This isn't just a southern United States um, project. This is something that is going on from Canada down to South America and everywhere in between. An individual would be in usually the western part of Africa. You know, not necessarily, there's always, every time I'll say, well, you know, this is where they're from, people are like, what about this person? So yes, there are individuals who come from other parts um, of Africa, but the vast majority, it is the western part of Africa. They are, vast majority are kidnapped. Some are prisoners of war, some are in there from other reasons, but the vast majority are kidnapped, put on ships, and sent across um, the ocean. And I will tell you that so many people died on that voyage that sharks used to follow the slave ships. Because when someone died, you would throw them off to get rid of the the odor, the issues, all that kind of stuff. Because um, then there was an ideal way to ship your cargo, the people, um, because slave traders didn't make any money if everyone passed and everyone died. So there was an ideal way that was supposed to be the best way to ship the cargo over to the new world. So then they would come here and be sold um, at slave auctions in in a variety of different ways. Um, all around, everywhere, New York to um, Georgia and everywhere in between. So again, I want to stress for your, for your listeners to remember that, again, it was not just a Southern United States institution, and it impacted all of, worldwide it impacted, but it impacted all of what would become the United States. 
you know, I was going to ask you that. So I'm glad that you pointed out that slavery was not confined to the borders of the South, because in my ignorance, I, as an African-American, assumed that it was only in the South and that, you know, that it was not, in fact, in other parts of North and South America. So thank you for sharing that. Well, and I'll also tell you, it was in Indiana. Now, Indiana um, was not supposed to have slavery. The Northwest Ordinance, which created us as a territory, said no slavery northwest of the Ohio River, but we have lots of incidences that we can find in Vincennes and along the river and, um, you know, along the Ohio River of individuals being held as slaves. And then when we became a state in 1816, our state constitution says no slavery. But we've got a woman who sued for her freedom in 1820. We became a state in 1816. And in 1820, she had to sue for her freedom because she was being held as a slave. So Hoosiers need to remember that it was also here in a variety of ways. And it may have been illegally holding people here, but we were still holding people as enslaved individuals in Indiana. Let's turn for just a second. So take a moment and, and describe what is the Underground Railroad? Because a lot of people, they've heard the term, but they may not know exactly what is the Underground Railroad. So first off, it is not hidey holes and tunnels. It is people helping people. It is offering somebody a place to stay for the night. Um, Someone knocks on your door and um, they just need a place to stay, whether it's in your house, in your barn, in your crops, and you guarantee that they're not going to find, no one's going to find them. Maybe it's um, food, clothing, um, medical care, whatever they need. And then directions onto the next house where you know they're going to be able to find um, that same help. Um, Maybe it's a ride. Maybe, you know, I, I get to my house, I give you, you know, dinner, and then we put you in a wagon, and I take you to the next house. Uh, it's that kind of help. Um, it is, you know, guarding people from um, bounty hunters who are chasing them from the plantation into Indiana, all doing that legally, while the work of the Underground Railroad is an illegal activity. And it's just people helping people in a variety of different ways, but not the tunnels and hidey holes and people hiding behind false walls and things like that. We have none of those documented in Indiana, but we have a lot of that help um, that we can document. Again, full transparency, when you think about the Underground Railroad, I think for many, their mind immediately goes to the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman and her many mm-hmm. return trips to help other slaves escape from bondage. Many people knew that slavery was wrong, but did little to help enslaved people. And so the bravery of those that were quote unquote conductors as a part of this massive network of the Underground Railroad cannot be forgotten as you just shared. And so in preparing for our conversation today, that I must say once again, that I was ignorant to the fact that so many Hoosiers, including right here in Northwest Indiana, were a part of this network. So let's park right here and talk about that for a moment, because I was really and truly amazed when I began to dig into this. Well, because you have to remember, okay, first off, there are people in Indiana who think slavery is fine or that it's none of our business. And so they would turn you in. So as if you are a fugitive slave and you are running from Kentucky, you can't just hang out in Indiana. Um, there are some that did. And, and tried, and we have incidences of them being captured. So you got to get out of um, Indiana. Michigan was um, an ideal place for a while, um, just north of South Bend is Cassopolis, and it was a free black settlement and became um, a fugitive settlement also. So you think about all the people going north or from um, over into Illinois coming um, east to get into Michigan or eventually Canada where you couldn't be 
extradited. They wouldn't allow for the capture of fugitive slaves um, there. And so of all these people, um, we think about in general, if you're walking, you can get about 15 miles a day at this time with going over rugged terrain and all this kind of stuff, not knowing where you're going, things like that. Right. So think about about every 15 miles, you got to find a place to sleep for the night, um, some place, someplace to get food. Now, I'm not saying every 15 miles there's a stop, but if you start thinking of it in those types of geographic areas, you're going to have Northwest Indiana um, individuals um, helping out. You're going to have people using Lake Michigan as a, as a vehicle to move across over to Michigan. You're going to have people coming up through Indianapolis and um, Westfield and places like that, all trying to find freedom. At the same time, though, you're also going to have people in all of those communities who are turning individuals in. There were um, bounties on these individuals' heads worth a lot of money, $30,000, dollars $40,000 in today's terms. And so you're living in Northwest Indiana and you don't know this person and you've probably got some racial opinions of them. They're breaking state and federal law. So you turn them in for the... Um, for that bounty. And so you got to remember that there's both sides playing here um, and that you know, the, the, the fugitives didn't know who was going to help them, who was going to turn them in, what's going to happen. Um, and so they're trusting individuals with their lives. Yeah, and just as you were painting the picture of the route, traveling through rough terrain when you don't know, you have really and truly no sense of direction, you really and truly don't know who you can and cannot trust, and I cannot imagine going through that. I know that we are many, many years removed from that, but as you were speaking of that, you know, my heart almost breaks at the thought of being under such a stressful and tough time. You're you're literally running for your life, and you don't know who you can trust. I mean, how scary was that? Oh, exactly. And so early on, um, it's young men, 18 to 25, who are the fugitives. We can see that through the, the reward ad. But imagine being a mom with four kids, five kids, and you're running. Because of the help, so early on, you know, we didn't have as much Underground Railroad, um, that cohesive network of of help. But by the 1850s, you're starting to get more people helping, more places. And so you start getting, you know, women with their five children. Um, we got a woman, uh, an incident down in Decatur County of that, um, you know, people getting caught. We've got 11 and 12-year-old girls by themselves being caught. And it's because of the help of strangers who, you know, they took their lives and, and gave them to these individuals and said, please help me. So it really, it's, it's amazing. And I couldn't fathom doing this, you know, even with the, the knowledge I have today of how to get from the Ohio River to, to Michigan. That's if you didn't have a map. The most you've got is the North Star, which directs you north, but right. not in the exact direction you need to go. And someone tells you, follow the stream till you get to the White House. And you hope you picked the right house. You hope you picked the right stream. You didn't stray. All these kinds of things. It had to be um, just, it had to be like the worst thing ever because you knew when you, if you got caught, you were going back. Right. You were going to be beaten. Um, probably if you're a woman, other things are going to happen to you because the slave owners needed to make sure that the punishment was harsh. So it discouraged others from running. So imagine it's not only that you're going to go back to slavery, but you are going to be punished for your um, the audacity of, of taking your life into your own hands. Yeah, that is, um, I shudder to even think. Now, another thing that I discovered and that you are always keen to point out is the distinct difference between the actors as part of the anti-slavery movement. You point out the difference between an abolitionist and someone who is actually working and participating in an actual underground railroad. And 
I must admit once again that I always use the the two terms synonymously. I always assumed that they were one and the same, but that's not true, correct? Oh yeah, correct. You have to think it's like a continuum of belief systems. There are people who thought slavery was a moral issue, but if you did something about it, then you were breaking the law and that was a moral issue. So they wouldn't have participated. You have people who maybe would go to um, a meeting and listen, write letters to the editor, write letters to the Congress, but would never fathom breaking state and federal law. And then, but then you also have individuals who have what we call colonizationists, who many of them believed slavery was wrong, but they didn't want blacks living in the United States. And we had we had several chapters here in Indiana. And so they didn't want them living in Indiana. And so they were against slavery, but that does not make you pro-black also. And so you've got a group of people who are trying to send all Africans are uh, all African Americans back to Africa. And then you've got, you know, Abel, or you've got Underground Railroad agents who I find in all of these other organizations, I find underground railroad agents who were also very, very colonization minded. So against slavery, willing to break the law to end slavery, but they certainly don't want someone living next door to them, kind of an attitude. And so you have all of these characters, just like any organization, any movement today, um, not everybody thinks the same. And so that was what we had. And so it's really important when we read something from like the 1880s and it says, you know, they were like an obituary. It says, oh, he's an ardent abolitionist. Well, him, that would have been great. He worked to the legal end of slavery, but may not have been pro-Black, may not have been pro-Underground Railroad. And so as historians, it's really difficult for us to remember this and piece it all together, but it's important to better understand the story. So, Jeannie, you're here with us today to talk about the Underground Railroad as its path made its way through Indiana. But if we can take a moment to unpack another historical fact about the Hoosier State as it relates to blacks, and that is the 1851 New State Constitution and what it said about new residents, particularly residents of African-American descent. Yeah, so this is not a new thing for Indiana. Um, in, in 1831, we passed a law that any new black or any black settling in the state didn't have to be new, but anybody living in the state was black had to pay a bond, a $500 bond that said they would not be a nuisance. Um, no whites had to pay this bond, and if a black person left the state, they didn't get the money back. So we've been trying to discourage African Americans from living in the state for quite a long time. And then in 1851, um, we have to write a new constitution for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the main sticking points and one of the main um, debates that they had was about allowing new blacks to settle in Indiana. And so the 1851 constitution didn't allow for it, um, made it illegal to make contracts with individuals as a way to discourage um this kind of activity and encouraging, you know, blacks to come to live in the state, but also the, the fee that if you, if you encouraged a black to live in the state by making a contract with them, you were fine. And that fine money went to the colonizationist um, society, uh, head of our own colonization board that was created um, as a part of this 1851 constitution. So all of these, you know, kind of, while we still got slavery happening and people trying to deal with underground railroad, um, Indiana was, and Indiana were not the only state to be doing this. There were several states, um, lots of states that were putting into constitutions and into laws, um, discouraging or making right out illegal for African Americans to settle in their state. 
You've shared throughout our conversation that being a part of the Underground Railroad was extremely dangerous and could cause catastrophic damage to a member's financial well-being and could even lead, in some cases, to death. There were countless Hoosiers that put their life on the line to help save those traveling along the Underground Railroad. So why do you think they did it? You know, that's a great question. Of Why would you, you know, be willing to, to, to break the law, put your family at risk, all these kinds of things? For some people, it was truly a moral issue that, you know, that, that what they were brought up with religion-wise, that it was, you know, a wrong thing. Others, um, maybe not through their religion, but just through their own looking at society, this is wrong. If, if the Constitution says these things, that all men are created equal. Some people, it was a, it was a, a transition. It was a journey for them. Um, we've got a couple of people um, that were originally colonizationists. They didn't want Blacks living here and, and um, moved themselves and learned. They, they studied things. They, they met African-Americans and said, no, this is not what I'm seeing. You know, the, the, the stereotypes is not true. And they grew as individuals and then started helping and started getting involved in politics to end um, slavery, things like that. So we do have um, a lot of white Hoosiers who, who grew um, and stuff and realized that what they thought before was wrong and you know, changed what they were doing and actually started then um, working on the Underground Railroad. And a lot of the Underground Railroad was family. Um, you get one guy doing it, and then his sons start doing it, and then the sons marry um, into a family that's very similar to them, and it's a daughter-in-law and her parents, and so you have a lot of connection that way. Um, because you have to build to trust these people to not turn you in. Um, so you get a lot of that kind of thing where it's a, a familial or very close friends um, who are participating together. Yeah, right. You know, I spoke earlier about escaped slaves not knowing who to trust, but I did not think about it until you just shared now. Also, those that were helping them, that were participating on with the Underground Railroad, they really and truly did not know who to trust. Exactly. So, yeah, that is frightening. And I just I cannot get over the, that time. For me, it's an interesting thing is, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's some of our worst part of our history of the enslavement of people, but it's also some of our best part of history of people, again, helping, growing, um, you know, African-Americans who are taking their um, own agency and doing, so it is, it is for historians, you know, I like that cotton. I like things um, that are not straight and clear because it just shows how complex we are. But this part of history, again, we need to study it because we need to understand what we were thinking and why so we don't continue to think that way. But we also need to study it so we understand how people can grow and change and help out other individuals um, that need help. So, Jeannie, finally, let's talk about your writing, The Escape of Peter, which actually that's what brought me to you. I found the story to be quite fascinating. Now, I should share for our listening audience that the work was originally published in the Black History News and Notes in May 2005, but it is also available on the Indiana Historical Society's website as well. There were so many interesting facts about the story for which inspired a deeper dive into federal court cases involving the escape of a slave from Wayne County. Please take a moment to walk us through the story of Peter. So, yes, Peter is um, living in Kentucky and he's enslaved and he chooses to take his own agency, and leave the plantation. But we don't know what happened to him. He, he left about 1821. We don't know what happened to him between 21 and 24 when he is found. He is found in Richmond, Indiana, which is on the east, east side of eastern part of this state. Um, he's living just north of, of Richmond. He's changed his name, and um, he's just living his life. He's a farmer, kind of, you know, trying to be a Hoosier. He... Um, 
the bounty hunters, who I'm fascinated with the bounty hunters. They know so many things. I don't know how they knew to go to Wayne County at this time, and they, they, they would stake out places, and they were staking out the store that Peter usually used. So Peter, also known as George um, Stello, is arrested. Now, according to state law, you can take them back, we'll extradite them back to Kentucky, but there's a process. And so the process is they have to take um, Peter to the, the county jail, and the, um, and the township trustee is a part of this process, and they have to go get the owner because it's the owner who has to identify him. And so, the, so they put Peter in custody, go back to Kentucky to get the owner, and during this time while he is incarcerated, and the, the court case says this, a violent mob of Quakers, which I love because we think Quakers are all passive, right. but apparently these guys were not. And it's not a mob. It's two guys. It's a, uh, a gentleman and, his again, his son-in-law. They go in, they beat up the jailer, and they break Peter out of jail. Wow. After that, we don't know what happened to Peter. We hope he found freedom. I just hope he got found. He went someplace else, found some freedom. So what's left for this owner of Peter to do? Well, federal law allowed them to, um, it was a 1793 law that George Washington signed. He allowed them to sue the two Quakers. And he did. He, he sued them for loss of property, no different than if they had stolen his horse. And he uh, won. Um, each had to pay $1,500. So in 1825, he got $3,000 for the inconvenience of the loss of his property. And so we've got, you know, again, this is like a, the epitome of a lot of Hoosier history, right? All in one. Right. Um, right. And shows how much more history we've got to uncover. Wow. As I said at the beginning, it, my question, that story is quite fascinating. I don't think that I've ever heard of a story of a slave owner being able to sue to recover financial damages for the loss of their property. So, yeah, it actually happens more than you think, because in the court records, it's going to be in the county court records, sometimes in the federal court cases. And so how many people go and read federal court cases? I mean, I did from the 1820s, but that's what I do for a living, you know? Um, And so, and it's for loss of property. So if you're not paying attention to how it's indexed, because it's indexed as loss of property or it's a property issue, you wouldn't think to look for slaves. So that was something that kind of turned how I was looking at the indexes. And so we actually find several people being, um, there was one up in Northern Indiana. They, uh, it was in the 1850s, late 1840s. They um, arrested a family out of Cassopolis, and as they brought them south into South Bend, um, a, a mob helped the family escape. There was a lot of things going on, and the slave owner uh, arrest, or, uh, sued many people, what cap of South Bend for loss of property. So it is something that happens, but it's not something we think of because of the property issue. Jeannie. During your tenure with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, you were a highly sought-after public speaker, and you traveled the state extensively, detailing Indiana's history regarding slavery and the Underground Railroad. And I can't state again that your years of investigative research have proved once again today to be enlightening. And I just simply cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today on Regionally Speaking. Well, thank you for highlighting this history. It's important. And if people want to learn more, go on the DNR's website. There's more information. There's more stories. And there are historians all around your region doing more research about what's going on in Indiana. Jeannie Reagan-Denius is the Director of Historic Preservation with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation. Jeannie is also the former Director of Special Initiatives with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. 
And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guest, noted historian Jeannie Reagan-Dennis, as well as Lakeshore Public Media's new president and CEO, Chuck Roberts. And we'll be back with you next Friday with an all-new show.